This episode is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a bit different than most summers. We're staying at home for the most part, and we're finding ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players, ages 10 and up, although younger kids can play with adult guidance. It is a great way to keep families engaged in off screens, even if it's just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. And it's really easy to pick up. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this episode on romantic comedies is kicking off our summer series all about rom-coms. I know. You guys were so excited about the suggestion, so I'm I'm hoping you're all listening. Yes. Because we've got a lot to talk about this intro episode. It's going to cover a lot of ground. It's going to cover the history and evolution of romantic comedies, where they came from, the role that censorship played, Shakespeare. We've got it all. Are we going to have a meet cute somehow? Yeah. Uh, well, every day is a meet cute. Oh, every day it's stuff mom never told you. Um, yeah, we have a lot of ground to cover. And I got to say, Caroline, this was some of the most fun stuff mom never told you research. Totally. Ever because got to just watch some rom-coms, hadn't seen A ever or B, <laughs> not in a long time. Yeah, so I watched for the first time ever to prepare for this, um, His Girl Friday. Fabulous, starring the dashing Cary Grant and one of my faves, Rosalind Russell. Yes, but I fell asleep. <gasps> because my brain was too tuckered out with all of that fast-paced, quick-witted sparkling dialogue. Oh, yeah. The old screwball comedy back and forth. It is a super screwball comedy. And I loved it. And like you spend the whole time being like, I love that they're at odds because that is such a rom-com trope. The man and the woman at odds. Um, and, and I loved it. My favorite. Some of my favorites, though, are I would have to say like High Fidelity. I love Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, and if, if you're looking at like shows, not just movies, I think You're the Worst is a great example of like a new age romantic comedy because it is like two people being terrible, but they are hilarious and in love. Um, I watched for this episode, uh, Bringing Up Baby last night, um, which is another one of my faves for listeners who don't know. Um, I watched a lot of old movies as a kid because it was mostly the only thing I was allowed to watch. Um, and I had so little appreciation for Catherine Hepburn when I was growing up. Oh, sure. I was all about Audrey Hepburn. I was like, Catherine Hepburn or whatever. But oh my gosh, she is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Bringing Up Baby is one of her earliest films. And she plays this zany heiress whom, uh, Cary Grant, uh, who was 
playing a zoologist in this episode. A, a zany zoologist? No, he's not zany oh, at all. Oh. No, he's just like trying to get her out of his life. But uh, Catherine Hepburn's character is like, no, I'm going to marry you. I know I'm going to marry you. I knew it when I first saw you. So she just like bamboozles him into essentially having to um, stay with her the whole time. And I don't want to spoil it. Um, so that was fantastic to watch. I also went back and watched... Stuff Mom Never Told You Fans' number one favorite rom-com based on the very unscientific Facebook <laughs> survey that we took a while back now, um, just asking folks what their favorite rom-com was. And the one that came up the most in a close, uh, very close to Love Actually, which was number two, uh, was You've Got Mail. That I think it's so funny. Ah, yeah. Especially going back and watching You Got Mail in 2016 is yeah. hilarious. Well, that's Dude Roommate's favorite rom-com. Oh, wow. Why does he love it so much? You've Got Mail? I don't know. But he, like, unabashedly... I mean, he jokes about it, but, like, he loves that movie. Well, I gotta say, Tom Hanks is very charming in it. But, you know, when I watched that movie, when it came out years and years and years ago now, 20 years ago, oh my god, um, I hated it. Because I was just like, you're tricking her. You're the big bad Barnes and Noble guy. And I mean, obviously, I know that it's based on the shop around the corner, which is an older movie. Um, but like, you're the big bad bookstore guy who is bamboozling Meg Ryan and her little local bookstore. Support your local bookstore. There's always so much bamboozling happening in, in rom-coms. So much deceit, seriously. Yeah, no, that is literally when you read academic works on rom-coms, of which there are some, uh, they talk about the masquerade or the deceit as being one of the major tropes, plot devices, what have you, that drives the plot forward. Um, I also, i got to give a quick shout out, and you've got mail to Parker Posey. Forgot she was in it. She plays Tom Hanks's girlfriend. Oh, and she's terrific. Because she's just, she's Parker Posey. I mean, what else do you need to say? By the way, listeners, if you don't already follow Parker Posey on Instagram, do it. Oh, I don't. Because it's bizarre. Oh, is it really? It's just her Snapchat. But it's really funny. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you've got mail, though, really crystallizes so many of the common elements of more modern rom-coms because Nora Ephron. Yeah. Meg Ryan. Tom and, Hanks. And her hair. And her hair. Um, also, I love a Greg Kinnear. Oh, yeah. He would show up in, I don't, I don't know if Sabrina, I guess Sabrina is considered a rom-com. Yeah, the, totally. The remake and the original. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really, interesting to go back and watch that. And also, in terms of the deceit and masquerading that's mm-hmm. so common in rom-coms, sitting there and being like, oh, no, Facebook would Facebook would take care of all of that. Oh, no, she'd Google him. <laughs> no, no, no. They, they, she would just Google. Yeah. I mean, smartphones really just ruin all romance yeah. in, in, in movies. Yeah, whether it's like an action movie with kidnapping or what. Like, yeah, ruin everything. But those fantastical worlds where... Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks and You've Got Mail somehow would not figure out who each other is. You, you know, you have all of these plot devices that require some magical thinking a lot of times when we watch rom-coms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast um, about rom-coms in preparation for this podcast. And one of them mentioned a piece that Mindy Kaling wrote a while back um, in The New Yorker in which she says, 
I regard romantic comedies as a subgenre of sci-fi in which the world operates according to different rules than my regular human world. For me, there's no difference between Ripley from Alien and any Katherine Heigl character. <laughs> and I had never thought about it before, but it's yeah. so true. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. I Yes, I have long considered romantic comedies specifically of that like 90s flavor um to be fairy tales oh sleepless in seattle oh yeah i mean yes when you go back and watch i did watch sleepless in seattle like a year ago probably and was like are you kidding me with this yeah. <laughs> i mean if someone were to tell you okay so a woman hears a boy on the radio and she by virtue of hearing the boy's story, falls in love with the dad and then kind of stalks him. But yes. Then, but oh, it's total stalking. Works out. Then they fall in love. How, it's like, what? How many rom-coms are just flat out stalking? Yeah. There's oh, a lot of stalking. God. A lot of, um, uh, of consent <laughs> lines that are, yes. that are often crossed. You're not, rom-coms. you're not wrong. And I mean, it's interesting to watch, I think, that rom-com evolution because we are out of, the age of the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Julia Roberts kind of deal. Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, yes, thank you. He of the bumbling <laughs> Hugh Grant uh, era. The whole Matthew McConaughey, Kate Hudson stuff. And we've moved into what I think is a really interesting era for romantic comedy. And I was trying to come up with some examples of modern romantic comedy. And I ac- accidentally, side note, kept just coming up with like self-romantic comedy where like the woman learns something about herself but it's like real quirky and funny along the way like Frances Ha have you seen that movie? I have Uh, one of my favorite movies I think it's precious and it's like women's relationships and with their bestie and with themselves and growing and all this stuff and I kept writing those down in my notes as like this is my favorite rom oh it's it's not a rom-com. Okay. Um, But I love the one movie I did keep coming back to was Obvious Child with Jenny Slate where it's you've got the the tropes of meet cute and in a way and uh, a little bit of deception and masquerading and awkwardness and uncomfortableness um, and, you know, boy gets girl or girl gets boy uh, all framed around an abortion. Yeah. And, and it's a fantastic movie. And it starts out with maybe one of my favorite jokes. In the world. If you yeah. haven't seen it, you really need to see it. We can't really uh, say it on the podcast. Um, so, yes, see Obvious Child ASAP. Um, you also noted Ravi Patel's Meet the Patels, which is another one I watched this weekend. Um, you can, P.S., get a lot of rom-com watching done when you're making wedding crafts. <laughs> uh, so that was very helpful timing so, for me. So get married. Yes. Um, well, just get engaged. Because okay. after after you get married, then you have no time, I'm assuming. I don't know. Um, and I'd been wanting to watch Meet the Patels for a long time because I'd heard rave reviews about it. Um, and also because it's told documentary style. Um, and it was really well done. I mean, it was a rom-com also through a completely different culture, obviously through an Indian culture. Um, that we do not see in Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson films. Right. It also it won the top prize at the Traverse City, Michigan Film Festival. What up, Northern Michigan? Um, but speaking of Matthew McConaughey, you know, he's faced a lot of cocked eyebrows, basically, for his crappy rom-com. I'm going to say it. I'm sorry for a lot of his really terrible rom-coms that he's been in and leaving those behind in favor of starring in things like True Detective and Dallas Buyers Club, things that have a lot of dramatic clout 
And he basically he told this interviewer, I think it was for Variety, that he's sick of this then and now narrative in terms of his career. And he says, because the thing behind it that people assume is that rom-coms aren't critical hits and that they're easy and they're not easy. It's a hard challenge, he said, to make it work, to tell a story you've seen time and time again that you know what the ending is going to be. And he's right. But it's like. I just, by the time, I don't know if it was my age or if it was just Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson that I couldn't take anymore, but I definitely hit a point where I was like, I cannot watch, maybe it was Jennifer Lopez too. I love her. She's a great actress. Cannot take her romantic comedies. But they do. They come off as so dumb and saccharine and easy to dismiss because they're just so tropey and easy to predict and they're so coded. You know that if a movie has Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey in it, you know they're going to end up together. There's no drama. But then it wouldn't be a romantic comedy if there were. Well, it's, it's a very specific genre. I got to tell you that if How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days just happens to be on a screen in front of me <laughs> on a weekend, I will watch it. I really enjoy it. I mean, like, and that is... It is super tropey, of course. And of course, you know that there's going to be some conflict. They'll lose each other and then they'll find each other again. But there is a comfort in the formulaic nature of it, too. Um, but all of those things that you just noted in terms of how predictable they are and how much they rely on gender stereotypes and how even <laughs> all the rom-coms that are set in New York, everyone lives in impossibly huge apartments. And they're instance. all in like publishing and marketing and newspapers and magazines. Oh, yeah. I love that Kate Hudson is like a magazine writer and apparently makes like well over six figures um, to have the apartment and the wardrobe that she does. And because of those kind of sci-fi rules, as Mindy Kaling describes them, they are easily dismissed. And in our conversation about this, we are going to be referring to Tamar Jeffers McDonald's book, Romantic Comedy, Boy Meets Girl Meets Genre. That's right. And only five romantic comedies have won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And I'm honestly surprised it's five. It's that many. Um, it happened one night from 1934, which is basically cited as like the OG romantic comedy that started the screwball genre, which, of course, we'll talk about more and more in depth later. Uh, 1938's You Can't Take It With You, 1960's The Apartment, 1977's Annie Hall and 1998's Shakespeare in Love, which I love. I've still never seen Shakespeare in Love. It's really good. It is really good. And and obviously so is Annie Hall. And unfortunately, I haven't seen the other three. Ooh, The Apartment is fantastic. Okay. Yeah, it'll um, it'll throw you for a loop in a good way. Oh. Um, and of course, they all follow the same basic formula, the same basic heteronormative formula mm-hmm. of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and boy does everything that he can or vice versa to regain the girl. Um, things that tend to happen include weddings derailed at the last minute. I mean, really, if you count up all the west wasted wedding money. Oh, I in know. Just millions of dollars. Out Didn't the door. occur to me until I was an adult. But jeez. Um, you also have the masquerade, as you mentioned, and um, the embarrassing gesture, uh, which is essentially like submitting to humiliation in order to prove your love. Like I'm putting everything out there for you. 
Look at what a fool I I am. I'm standing in front of your house with a boombox on my shoulder. Right. And again, that goes back to the sci-fi nature of so many rom-coms. Because if you're standing, if I've rejected you and you're standing outside of my house with a boombox, I'm calling 911. Anywho. And of course, another element of the formula is the meet cute, uh, which is basically the two characters meet in a way that forecasts their union. And Billy Wilder, the 20th century uh, screenwriter, director, uh, is one of the foremost proponents of the meet cute. Yeah, he told um, an interviewer at the Paris Review that at the time, he and other screenwriters would just keep notebooks of meet cutes. Anytime a meet cute idea would come to mind, they'd be like, oh, that's another one because you had to have a meet cute. Well, yeah. And in case you're like, I'm still not clear on what a meet cute is. Here's an example from a wilder script. Uh, 1938's Bluebeard's Eighth Wife features the couple first crossing paths in a department store where the guy wants to buy just the top of the pajamas and the woman wants to buy just the bottom. I mean, how often does that happen to you, Caroline? Oh, my God. All the time when I'm shopping in the men's section of the department store. For pajamas. For pajamas. <laughs> um, and you also see very uh, familiar conflicts that tend to arise. Uh, you have the whole parent-child conflict, which is um, super common, whether it's parents you know, disapproving of a relationship or parents just generally being disappointed in their children or being overly um, ambitious in terms of uh, what they want for their kids. And then you have conflicts with uh, courting men and women that struggle to find common ground and the opposition of the gender cultures. I mean, I think uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days mm-hmm. plays that up so much where oh, it's yeah. like, you bring over tampons to a man's bathroom and he'll throw you out mid-intercourse. But one thing that McDonald notes about this whole gender-based conflict thing that is so tropey in rom-coms is that the dual protagonist perspective actually does offer really great characters on the men's side and the women's side. So it's obviously you have romantic comedies that are more from the woman's perspective or more from the man's. But when you have a Sleepless in Seattle case where it is like Tom Hanks is the main character and so is Meg Ryan, it gives you that chance to see how men and women can both be strong and weak, can be tropey masculine and tropey feminine, but can also go against those gender norms. And she points out Great traditional rom-com actors like Cary Grant, James Stewart and Hugh Grant, who are allowed to be and expected to be handsome and strong and elegant and witty. But they also want intimacy and they're ready to laugh at themselves. And then, of course, you've got the classic women like Catherine Hepburn, Meg Ryan and Julia Roberts, who are obviously beautiful and playful, but they can also be aggressive and assertive and sassy and independent. And it goes to the yin and the yang, the uh, Renee Zellweger, Tom Cruise, you complete me. And that's a byproduct of having these two great characters, even if they do exhibit a lot of tropey, gross stuff that we're sick of. It allows for really well-rounded characters that essentially serve to complete each other. Well, and it also shows how you know, it portrays these characters as both fallible when it mm-hmm. comes to love. And a lot of times they are tripped up by those very gender stereotypes that a lot of times the rom-coms are propping up. Right. But again, like if you maintain the gender conflict throughout the whole movie, they might never get together. 
Yeah. So you've got to like have a way for them to overlap their sensibilities uh, so that they can have that happy ending. And of course, the central ideology, the central idea driving rom-coms is the primary importance of the couple, which, of course, traditionally has been white and has been heterosexual. Although we did start to see like in the 90s uh, more attempts to include more LGBT storylines, more people of color falling in love, because who knew it's not just white straight people falling in love oh. in real life. Um but regardless of who is falling in love in these movies, monogamy rules the day. Uh, settled interrelationship sex is at the heart of the rom-com because monogamy and, you know, one partner only relationships stand in for basically social stability. Um, but it is interesting. Several of the writers that we read to prepare for this episode point out that romance, grand romance and actual relationship stability kind of have different goals. So, you know, these characters are are pursuing and infecting our minds with the drive for constant, eternal, butterflies-in-stomach romance. But they're also going for marriage and babies eventually. Like, that's also the goal. And, you know, your traditional long-term relationship is not always going to be butterflies in the stomach. Sometimes you're going to fight about the dishwasher or the toilet seat. Hence, we don't want to see... People mid-relationship in rom-coms. We yeah. want to see single people. We want yeah. to see the conflict and the se- sexual tension and the anxiety well, that all leads up to the final climax. That's why I love the movie Two Day. Is it Two Days in Paris? Um, where they are mid-relationship and they go to Paris to see her parents and massive conflict ensues and that's so fascinating to me i'm so over rom-com tropes but that doesn't mean we're done talking about it because of course we've been talking about gender but we've been talking about gender within the film itself but the fact that rom-coms are so strongly associated with female audiences is a huge reason that they face a lot of criticism i mean these movies are marketed to women and they are assumed therefore to largely appeal to women and so it's for these reasons that a lot of scholars and critics alike consciously or unconsciously disparage them. It's like the whole conversation we had a couple summers ago mm-hmm. about chiclet and how marginalized it is simply because it's marketed to women. Oh, well, and female fandom at large, oh, yeah. you know, like teeny bopper type of stuff, girls and women being dismissed for what they like in pop culture. Um, but... It's interesting when you think about these plots of these movies, it's not like it's only the woman who gets the happy, warm, fuzzy feels. The man's getting it, too. And it's this myth of perfect love that appeals to everyone, not just men, not just women, not just straight people. And these narratives that we see so often in rom-coms demonstrate that both the woman and the man have to change and adapt to come together, basically. And it's interesting that it again, it's not just the woman in the audience who's like, hey, you should change to find love. The man watching the rom-com is also being presented with these images, whether it's Cary Grant or Hugh Grant or whoever. These, you know, handsome guys and great apartments who are living these great lives, drinking martinis and whatever. And it's like, here, here's an image for you to try to aspire to as well. So. 
you see as rom-coms evolve from their origins, and then especially once you hit the 50s and 60s of like kind of this con- slick consumer culture getting wrapped up in them as well. Well, and if we talk about the origins of rom-coms as a genre, we have to go back before film was invented, uh, before Oscar Wilde and Jane Austen um, to Shakespeare, because really a lot of the rom-com formulas that we still see today on screen came straight from the bard. Well, yeah. And I mean, you see, you know, love triangles in Midsummer Night's Dream or Twelfth Night. And in Taming of the Shrew, you see the crude sister who ends up tame. It's also what 10 Things I Hate About You is based on BTW. Um, you see in Much Ado About Nothing, couples ripped apart by scandal and getting back together. And I mean, the, their total direct ancestors to a movie like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which is like the entire plot is based on deception and getting ripped apart and then getting thrown back together. That dramatic irony that Shakespeare was so expert at. Well, and also playing around a lot with status and someone ending up with Maybe an unexpected person, mm-hmm. but the right person. Right. So um, one example that Jesse Cadel over at Hypable mentioned was how that happens in uh, both Midsummer Night's Dream and also Legally Blonde. <laughs> uh, yeah. And once we get into Hollywood, even in the silent era, we have rom-coms, which are kind of hard to imagine, uh, silent rom-coms. But old Cecil B. DeMille was making them. You know, who hasn't seen the classic 1918 Old Wives for New, <laughs> you know, or 1919's Don't Change Your Husband. I love the titles of these films because then in 1920, I'm assuming this is a sequel to Don't Change Your Husband. Uh, DeMille put out Why Change Your Wife? I, I, they sound like chapters in a book. God. Yeah, I think was Cecil B. DeMille just like working out some marital issues. Through uh, through the camera, I don't know. But yeah, these are basically essentially moralistic early rom com type films. You also have in 1924 Sherlock Jr. and Girl Shy that follow the Shakespearean meet, have conflict, and then have happy reunion plot device. But as you can imagine, the whole silent thing kind of puts a damper on the rom com stuff. Because you're like watching and you're hearing all the piano or the organ music and you're like, oh, my God, they're having witty dialogue. And you've got to wait, and wait, wait. And you get the little card that's like, and get out of here, you brute. And then it goes on. You're seeing more dialogue and she's being, you know, roped to a set of train tracks. And you're like, what's going on? And it's like, oh, actually, I love you. Thanks for saving me. It kind of like screws with the pacing. I would really like uh, Mystery Science 3000 with you, but just with silent films. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like that. If anyone wants to sign up and start a campaign, that would be great. Um, but it was really this. This is a twist. Here's a plot twist. Listeners, censorship was really what propelled screwball comedies, classic screwball comedies. And this was something that David Denby wrote about. In the New Yorker, because, of course, censors always existed because people were, you know, worried about the effects of film on young people. So the moral standards have been around since 1922 when the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors Association, which would later become MPAA, recruited old Will Hayes as president to administer morals. 
which was at first basically just a verbal agreement with producers like, hey, you know, don't do anything that will corrupt the minds of the youth. Um, but of course, with Hayes came the Hayes Code. Yeah. So at first, censorship was pretty inconsistent. Things would be banned in some cities and not others. But interestingly, of course, bans on female sexuality were pretty consistent. You had Theta Barra's vamp movies banned. Anything about adultery was like super taboo. Even Margaret Sanger's film Birth Control, which I somehow didn't know existed, even though we talked about her a lot in our episodes on abortion, uh, that was banned. And in the early 30s, post-sound, you get a lot of newspaper comedies, gangster flicks, musicals, horror, melodrama, things that could really finally take advantage of sound. But at this time, you also see a lot of movies, despite the fact that we're having those moral standards. Remember, they're not being consistently applied yet. So you see a lot of movies with bad girls and scandal like Jean Harlow in The Red-Headed Woman as an unstoppable and unpunished homewrecker uh, working from a script by Anita Luz by the way. Uh, you see Miriam Hopkins in the story of Temple Drake. She's a woman who lives with a gangster before she returns to respectability. And Mae West in a lot of her films where she's the super sexual being who took her pick of men. And a lot of feminist film critics love this period in film history because even though you know, not all portrayals of female sexuality are positive and some are exploitive during this period. You still don't see women necessarily having to fit into a strict moral pattern or a specific box about how to act. And they're not yet being killed off for being sexual. But with the Hayes Code comes those super strict standards for what could be shown on screen. And it really grew out of Essentially, this group of Catholic folks who developed a set of standards that would become the official Hayes Code that prohibited profanity, licentious or suggestive nudity, sexual perversions and rape. And this is also where you get married people in the movies sleeping in separate beds because you can't even suggest that even a married man and woman might sleep together. And so in 1933, you get the Catholic-based Legion of Decency, which sounds either terrifying or lame, I can't really decide, um, that's crusading against Hollywood as a moral threat at the same time that you see women's groups protesting depravity. And the MPPDA has to review screenplays before they go into production. They demand changes. And this is when you see the punishment of sexual women, of loose women, Basically being officially instituted, this film group adds the practice of moral compensation. Basically, sin could be shown, women could be living it up sexually, but they have to be punished. So the woman who has sex or commits adultery or whatever, she's got to drive off a cliff or she's got to lose everything. Uh, films, literally films in the early 30s that had already been made were recut to show the woman who basically was like, oh, I had a hard life, but I'm happy now. Like, she had to lose everything. They were like, nope, you got to Thelma and Louise it. Just go off the cliff. Yeah, and so basically, once the Hayes Code came into effect, filmmakers had to get creative. So this is happening in the mid-1930s, and... The challenge put to producers, directors, and writers uh, was to create sex without sex, essentially. You had to somehow um, depict sexual tension without, of course, um, igniting the ire of the, the Hayes Code. 
So this actually produced really fantastic results for romantic comedy. And it really led to the whole genre of screwball comedies because you get this physicality with these early rom-coms to where, you know, you can't really show them in a, a, certainly not in a bed together. Even like bedrooms are a little bit off limits. So sex becomes playful or a lot of dance. I mean, if you have seen um, films with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers or uh, Gene Kelly and any number of the, the women that he co-starred with, their dance numbers are essentially sex scenes in a lot of ways. I oh, mean, hubba hubba. Yeah, I mean, because that's how that's how they woo. The, the woman was through, you know, <laughs> tap dancing, which why doesn't that happen <laughs> in real life? Um, and even in... The movie uh, Bringing a Baby with uh, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, which came out, I believe, in 1938. Uh, I was thinking about this when I was watching it because there's this scene where they're in a nightclub and Cary Grant steps on the back of Katherine Hepburn's gown and it rips off the back. So her the pantaloons are exposed and he's like, oh, no, no, no. And she finally realizes what's happened. And so to get through the restaurant, he like you know, holds her from behind, you know, and they like walk <laughs> in this really funny way, like two by two um, through the restaurant. But they're so close. Oh, there's know? no room for the Holy Spirit between them. Not at all. And I was like, oh, there it is. They're creating sex without sex. Yeah. I had no idea. That's what I was watching. OK, that's right. And and I love the context of this because, you know, we've moved obviously from the silent era, but you still had those people working in Hollywood and they had been expert at communicating comedy silently. So you had still a lot of those uh, silent comedy directors who were so adept at weaving in visual comedy, pratfalls, hilarious little moments into those films. But you also had a lot of that sparkling quick dialogue that you obviously couldn't have in silent films um, being written by both men and women from back east, people who were veterans of Broadway, who were so skilled at writing that all-consuming dialogue that apparently can put me to sleep if my brain gets too tired watching it. But it did create these great speaking roles for women who could carry these films. Oh, man, like a Catherine Hepburn just and also Rosalind Russell were, I mean, so terrific at that just machine gun staccato. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. And Denby credits uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy in 1934's The Thin Man and Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn in 1938's Holiday uh, with sort of setting the tone, displacing sex with wit, affection, and style, and setting the ball rolling on the era of screwball comedy. And thank goodness by the early 50s, movies finally get First Amendment protection through a Supreme Court ruling. But a lot of the film scholars we read were like, eh, I don't know, I kind of took something away when they were... (laughs) When filmmakers were forced to work around these regulations. So if we look at the timeline of rom-coms in Hollywood, the entire genre can be broken down into many genres. So in the 1920s and 30s, with those earliest rom-com talkies, they were really comedies of manners that played a lot with status, revolving around relationships between people of different social classes, the high-low. 
And one of the films often cited is It Happened One Night, 1934, with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. And you'll later see this theme in movies like 2009's The Proposal and 2001's Bridget Jones' Diary. Basically, people of different social classes winding up together and becoming better people. Although I could argue that Hugh Grant never becomes a better person in Bridget Jones' Diary. Ooh, sick burn. Oh, yeah, he really doesn't. Oh, I thought you meant Hugh Grant the person. No. Oh, well, I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, this is coming out. This is the myth of the Great Depression. And despite the fact that people were losing their jobs, they had no money, movies still remain popular, especially movies like It Happened One Night, because these screwy romantic comedies were portraying the problems of the Depression, but with characters that ultimately triumphed over them. And so you get exposed, for instance, in It Happened One Night to the upper class life of Ellie. But you then watch as she has to cross the country with no money. And this is an enriching experience that helps her grow. And a lot of people were attracted to the ideas in these films that poverty was morally superior to wealth and that your book learning or your city learning was no better and definitely not superior to the school of hard knocks that a lot of people were living through during this time. And um I got to mention one side fact about Clark Gable in this movie, Caroline, that goes back to our episode on toplessness mm-hmm. and how we talked about um, male toplessness was not accepted for a while in the 20th century as well. Male nipples, not OK at the beach, but it happened one night contains a scene in the bedroom where Clark Gable takes his shirt off. And he's got nothing on underneath. Oh, my gosh. I know. And this was, I mean, talk about creating sex without sex. I mean, the side of Clark Gable's nipples <laughs> were a pretty huge deal in Hollywood at the time. Especially since he had like seven of them. He had so many extra nipples. <laughs> um, and one source that I read said that correlation causation, sure, but undershirt sales plummeted. After the movie came out, because it was wildly popular and people were like, oh, it was Clark Gable winning Claudette Colbert with no undershirt on. Look at those nips. Look at those nips. Uh, but anyway, uh, once we get into the 30s and 40s, it happened one night really did pave the way for the screwball era, um, which specifically lasts between 1934 and 1942-ish, if you want to get technical about it. And... Screwball romantic comedies are (laughs) basically 90 minutes of a guy and a girl just putting each other through hell. Yeah. (laughs) And also just like injuring themselves over and over again um, in the process of falling in love. Yeah. And it's the movie 20th century that's also cited as a pave the wayer uh, in this genre. And it really ushered in that idea that people who love each other can and will do anything they possibly can to torment one another. And this is also a great era, like I said, for women characters, because you finally have a lot of lead characters who are driving the story and are able, like a Katherine Hepburn or a Rosalind Russell, to give as good as she gets. She knows her own mind. She isn't above humiliating the guy. She's smart enough to outsmart him. And she can even be aggressive or a little predatory. But writing about uh, film genres, specifically romantic comedy, Julie Selbo says that as big of fans as so many feminist film critics are of this era, uh, others have written that the threatened violence 
between couples, especially toward female characters, is a sign that they weren't necessarily celebrated as independent and active women, but that there is some anxiety around women's independence that's getting acted out on screen. I completely disagree. Well, no, go. Tell me. I completely disagree. I mean, as uh, an armchair, like... (laughs) 12-year-old consumer <laughs> of these films um and also I was I was thinking about this specifically when I was watching Bringing Up Baby last night because it's very physical mm-hmm. and Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant both are constantly tripping and falling and like I said just somehow hurting themselves having car accidents you name it um and I don't think that it is any way of trying to punish Catherine Hepburn's strong-willed heiress. But rather, I mean, I thought it was really fantastic to see a woman being as active Mm -hmm. on screen as the lead man. Right. You know, I mean, that that was my initial reaction to reading that was like, I totally agree. These women, like you said, they give as good as they get. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just like the dudes in screwball comedies specifically, that involves tripping and falling. (laughs) Like, I mean, there's just a lot of banana peels everywhere, so to speak. Yeah. And so you've got these screwball comedies that are so popular there. They are the genre of romantic comedies during this time. And I mean, you've got elements still of those early 1920s comedies of manners. Uh, you've still got that reverse class snobbery, role play, masquerade, um, a conventionally repressed person, male or female, uh, being brought out of his or her shell by the zany person, in that case, a zany heiress. Um, and then, you know, being like, oh, my God, you're so weird. Oh, but I think I love you now. Especially if that person takes off his or her glasses. <gasps> this is also a genre that loves a magical makeover. Yeah. Which, yeah, it really just requires, like, glasses removal. Oh, oh you're oh, beautiful. Well, where have you been? But what's interesting to see, because nothing exists in a vacuum is that this whole screwball nature, although it never truly goes away, as we can see in our romantic comedies today, it starts to fade and get a little darker post-World War II. So you go from a plot like Philadelphia Story, where the divorced couple reunites, and that's the tension, uh, to that of the film The Marrying Kind, which focuses instead on the path to divorce. And of course, it's not like divorce was like super common or accepted back then necessarily, but it was showing up in our pop culture definitely as a reflection of the times. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, you start having exes as common parts of rom-coms. And the late 50s through the early 70s is known as the era of the sex comedy. Yeah. So through the early From the early 50s through the mid-60s particularly, the genre definitely lightens again. But that entails masculine and feminine roles becoming super black and white, oversimplified, and very explicit. Men were painted as wanting sex without strings. Women were painted as wanting financial security. If you've seen How to Marry a Millionaire, The Seven-Year Itch, Some Like It Hot, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Pillow Talk, all of that stuff, you know what we're talking about. And so the the defining characteristics of these sex comedies 
were revolving around those gender differences about when sex should happen. Because obviously the woman didn't want it till she was married because that was what created the tension, right? The man's like, oh, hubba hubba, give it to me now, baby. And the woman's like, no, not until we're married. It's like, oh, but I'm a bachelor with a martini and a record player. Uh, marriage is tragic and awful and it's going to hamper my lifestyle. And she's like, well, then you're just not good enough for me. And then he's like, oh, no, let me take off my glasses. I really love you. Huh. So that's early sex comedy. But it turns out they were just drunk on martinis and woke up the next day completely hungover. And they were like, this is a terrible idea. Oh, man. Oh, well, brother. yeah, a terrible idea because they fell in love with each other. And that's why the whole masquerade thing is one of the largest plot devices for these uh, sex comedies. And usually with sexual motives, you've got a man like Rock Hudson and Lover Come Back pretending to be a shy scientist to seduce Doris Day. But when the woman does it, it tends to be to, like, get one up on a female rival or to get the dirt on a female rival rather than necessarily to get back at the dude. And again, nothing exists in a vacuum. I can say that all the time for everything we ever record. Because the sex comedy was ushered in by a very specific set of cultural circumstances happening at the same time. So in 1953, you have the release of the Kinsey Reports that gets everyone talking about sex. You also have the birth of Playboy happening. There are more people becoming fed up with sexual double standards and these assumptions that women don't want or like to have sex Uh, in 1960. We get the pill. I mean, you also have Cosmopolitan magazine mm-hmm. um, and Helen, Girl- Helen Gurley Brown taking it over later, I believe, in the 60s or early 70s. And in 1966, the strict moralistic film codes were replaced with rating systems thanks to efforts by Otto Preminger to go around the codes and find distribution for his sexually frank 1954. Three film that I have not seen, uh, The Moon is Blue, which apparently is a rom-com that investigates sexual desires and double standards. But even still, even if it's not like in your face, there were so many like double entendres in oh, yeah. all of these films like uh, How to Marry a Millionaire and The Seven Year Itch, which is where you have the famous scene of uh, Marilyn Monroe standing above the subway grate and her dress blows up and the guy's like, I don't know if I can stay with my <laughs> wife. <laughs> well, so from the mid 60s on, you know, rom-coms are becoming way more frank when it comes to sex. But in return, we see the whole faith and traditional romantic outcomes becoming a little ambivalent or even pessimistic. We're getting into the 70s where we get movies like Annie Hall and The Graduate and Harold and Maude, which is the era of the radical romantic comedy, which is like, is love even real? Yeah, apparently, you know, the 70s is known as the me decade when the sexual revolution is overhauling sexual mores and you have more women achieving more financial independence. I believe it was 1974. Women were finally, unmarried women were finally allowed to, uh, have credit cards. Oh, good for them. I know. And that way, clueless could happen. <laughs> um, and women's roles, though, around this time in films became diminished with the rise of buddy comedies and action adventure plots. And if you look, you know, that's happening and simultaneously IRL, men and women are becoming more open about sex and desire. So what kind of tension can you build in a rom-com? I mean, love is old school. 
Yeah, so you have people like Woody Allen and others investigating whether true love even exists. Are soulmates a thing? Do we even need to have love in our lives to be fulfilled? Or, you know, the sad sack, I'm so empty because I no longer believe in the importance of love. And these films are really characterized by this cynicism that eventually moves toward acceptance of romantic love, but without necessarily losing their identities without necessarily having the all-consuming fairy tale going on. And so characteristics of these rom-coms include that sexual frankness and that questioning of the importance of love. They're also breaking social conventions. So you're seeing divorce and children out of wedlock being depicted. And because it is the me generation or the me decade, that emphasis on the self, you're seeing more characters in therapy or analysis. You're seeing more people talking about and reading self-help books. And um, in the movie Starting Over, for instance, the character alludes to a women's self-defense class. She's talking about the right and wrong kinds of orgasms and post-divorce support groups. And on a clear day, you can see forever and an unmarried woman, those films emphasize the importance, oh, my God, of women's sexual fulfillment, because you can finally post Hayes code admit that like, oh, yeah, women are sexual, too. They're like the other half of this equation. Well, and talk about a sex comedy of this era that just came to mind as you were talking about that is um, I don't know the year that it came out, but I believe it was either late 1960s, early 1970s, starring the beautiful Natalie Wood. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's called I'm going to mess up these name, the name order, but it's something along the lines of Bob, Carol, Alice and Ted. No, I think it's Bob, Carol, Ted and Alice. And it's about these uh, two couples that are wondering whether they should swing or not. And like everything revolves around that. I mean, talk about something, a theme that you would not see in a rom-com. Well, yeah. And I mean, you've got the idea, too, around this time, especially with Annie Hall, where like, yes, we're questioning the existence of true love and soulmates. And you might not even end up together with that person, but still love is there. So like you know, uh, Diane Keaton's character and Woody Allen's character don't end up together. Spoiler. But she finds love and happiness with someone else. And he admits at the end of the movie, like, oh, well, just love is this like crazy, stupid thing that, you know, everybody wants and has to have, even though it's ridiculous. That crazy little thing called love. Crazy little thing called love. And so, yeah, the idea of love is still there. But we're finally admitting like, oh, we can depict not tragic scenes, but, you know, just more like bumbling, unfortunate romances that don't work out, even if they might work out with other characters. Well, and when we get into the 90s and onward, I mean, that to me is such a classic era of rom-coms because, I mean, you have Nora Ephron uh, making When Harry Met Sally. I know that came out in 1989. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like this. there's really a resurgence of of rom-coms. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, so Harry Met Sally is widely considered to be an homage to Woody Allen. But again, it concludes on a totally different tone or a note with that amazing scene at the end where um, Billy Crystal is confessing his love to Meg Ryan in the middle of the party. And I just love it. And then Meg Ryan says no. Spoiler. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But so this is when we see narratives returning that are focused on romance to the exclusion, basically, for most of them, of sex. We see 
sex no longer being primary or even important, the couple, the romance, the fairy tale Prince Charming stuff is what is of primary importance. And it's up to the protagonist to figure out how and whether she wants it. And this person is usually damaged in some way, uh, maybe has gone through a painful experience and now they're cynical about love because inevitably they're in New York City and no good men are left in New York City. And they've really got to come to terms with whatever their pain or damage is to be able to come together with Prince Charming. Like you see... Again, with the proposal with Ryan Reynolds and uh, Sandra Bullock, who's also a rom-com queen, who I just love. Like, Sandra Bullock's probably one of my favorite people. Uh, I say that like I know her. That's Sandy, are you listening? Oh, Sandy. Um, but, you know, that's a plot where the woman is super independent, career-driven, and doesn't want love, and then finally has her cold, dead heart warmed by Ryan Reynolds' adorable family, which I believe is Coach and Mary Steenburgen. It is Coach, yeah. yeah. Um, but you see more plots like that where it's like, we're not even trying to get in bed together. We just love each other so much. And rom-com characteristics around this time include things like nostalgia around romance, which you absolutely see with When Harry Met Sally. Um, you have references to older films, stories, and songs to fill characters and moods. You actually have a de-emphasis on sex and emphasizing in its place romantic compatibility. And still, marriage is the end goal. Everyone wants to find that someone, yeah, that special I, someone. Well, I think that whole referencing back to old films and songs and stuff is so interesting because I never thought about it that way. But when you have a movie like My Best Friend's Wedding, that's got a lot of those great old songs in it. Uh, when you have A Sleepless in Seattle, like part of the plot is based around an affair to remember. And so there is a lot of that winking to the audience of like, look at what we're trying to do. We're bringing romance back. But a big exception to this uh, very American conversation we've been having because we are American. Sure. Um, is the British rom-com, which did feature premarital sex, um, but they excuse it by making the sexually aggressive partner both female and American a lot of times. Um, for instance, in uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill and Wimbledon, which I've never seen. I have not seen Wimbledon either. Uh, but yeah, I think that's so funny. Again, this is a point I literally had not considered before, but it's so true. Four Weddings and a Funeral, though, like, bless Annie McDowell's heart. She is so pretty, but she is a terrible actress. Oh, but Groundhog Day, that's a fun one. It was so fun, but she's so like, she's just that pretty face that's like vacant behind the eyes. I have a follow-up question related to rom-coms and Andy McDowell to okay. ask you. Yes. And also Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. Is Magic Mike a rom-com? I haven't seen it. Oh, Caroline, listeners, please write me and let me know everything that you think about Magic Mike and Magic Mike XXL because Andy McDowell is in the follow-up. I would argue that it is a rom-com. I believe you. And terrific. But anyway. Well, I mean, I think to close out, I mean, we've given you a really huge history to introduce this topic. But I think to close out, obviously, the calm part of the rom-com is indispensable. Because if you didn't have the the calm, it would just probably be a rom-drom. Yeah. And which can be okay, you know, English patient, whatever. (laughs) But... 
you know, it's it's weird that like the defining characteristic of what makes this genre is also what makes it so dispensable. Yeah. Like it's so easy to just poo poo them and and gloss over them and ignore them because it's something that's funny and it is pratfalls and it's joking and it's wit and snark and sarcasm and it is happy endings. But like I love that sometimes, sometimes I don't watch them as much anymore. Um, and I, I was wondering, I was like, do I not watch them anymore because they're terrible and I'm so sick of Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson? Or do I not watch them anymore because I'm like older and in an established relationship? I don't know. And this also makes me want to see some, uh, some scholarly analysis of, uh, film criticism regarding Judd Apatow's rom-coms because obviously that's like a whole new phase of it where you have more of the raunch com. Um, but all of those women still end up like I'm waving my finger at this because like all of those women still end up in the traditional feminine like I'm going to get married and be reformed by love thing. And I am going to be pretty emotional about it. Yeah. And I'm going to be pretty. Oh, yeah. 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 So. Well, I can't wait to talk about this more. I know. All summer. Um, And I think that we should give listeners a preview of what's to come because this is an overview but we are going to dive into more specific topics, mm-hmm. such as... Well, for one, the cold, dead-hearted career woman who finds love, which you mentioned earlier. We're also going to dedicate an episode to LGBTQ rom-coms and also people of color mm-hmm. in rom-coms who are usually sidekicks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the rom-com is sort of... a. Uh, niched as a black comedy. Right, right. And ignored by the mainstream. And then finally, we're dedicating one to the sidekicks themselves. Yeah, I can't wait. Oh, my God. There was so much like as I was taking notes for this episode, I was like, oh, this is this is there's so much in here for everything. And I had to stop myself from just reading for hours, although I did read for hours. So never mind. It's really fun. Um, And I bet you have some fun letters to share with us, including your favorite and least favorite rom-coms and why. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I've got a letter here from Erica in response to our episode on the comfort women of World War II. Uh, Erica says, I found the episode very timely as I just finished a paper about ethnic struggles in Japan for my college finals. There may be several reasons behind the disturbing fact that Japan won't acknowledge the comfort women from Korea. One may be because it would essentially open a can of worms about the entire Japanese sex industry and how they treat foreign women overall. This additional mistreatment has happened outside of war and still continues today. Japan has had an influx of migration since their economy boomed in the 1980s. Filipino women often traveled to Japan under entertainment visas, and Japan allowed this knowing that these women would turn to or be forced into prostitution. Additionally, Filipino women were brought into the country to marry rural farmers who couldn't find Japanese wives. These women were forced to adopt Japanese names and denied cultural identity. The point here is that this is all very recent and may still be going on. Japan also has a recent tradition of recruiting half-Japanese women for modeling. These girls, as young as 10, are collected from areas with large migrant populations, usually Brazilian, 
and quote unquote adopted by modeling agency staff to live with them where they are molded into the perfect Japanese citizen. This is another way to strip a girl of her own cultural identity and objectify her. There are several more examples of Japanese mistreatment of foreign women, but I didn't want to make the email too long. Thank you for all your work, and I look forward to learning more from your podcast. And thank you, Erica, for your notes. We always appreciate filling in the gaps of our episodes. And that whole having to take a, a Japanese name thing was also going on with Korean women who were forced into prostitution around World War II, who uh, men and women alike had to adopt Japanese names. So thank you. So I've got a letter here from Lauren in response to our episode on uh, the American military and prostitution. And Lauren graduated from West Point in 2010 and served five years in the military, including a deployment in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And she writes... Upon arrival in theater, service women received numerous lectures and were told anecdotes, urban legend or real, I'm still not certain, of women being violently sexually assaulted, as if our greatest threat wasn't enemy combatants, but our fellow soldiers, both American and allies, on base inside the secure perimeter. It was so frightening that for the majority of the deployment, I carried a quick-draw knife on my belt and practiced unsheathing it in case I was attacked in close quarters. And this was on top of carrying a loaded pistol on my hip. Female soldiers were not allowed to go anywhere without a battle buddy, especially after dark, and could get in trouble if found walking alone. I felt as if the military was saying, ladies, it's up to you to protect yourselves because we know these military men have needs, and eventually they won't be able to contain themselves. I mean, really? One of the most ludicrous arguments against women serving in combat arms branches and unions is that women will have sex with members of their units and damage unit cohesion and morale. So basically, men can't keep it in their pants, so let's keep discriminating against women. Or worse, women are temptresses who will seduce helpless men who can't resist their charms and must be kept away from our military heroes. I can't help but wonder and hope that by the time my daughter is of age to serve in the military, if she chooses, women will no longer be expected to prevent their own sexual assault. Whew. Well, Lauren, first of all, thank you for your service, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and listeners, if you have thoughts to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about rom-coms, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, I'm Allie Wentworth. How do I grow a teenager in a pandemic? Well, that's exactly what I want to find out. In my new podcast, Go Ask Allie, I'm asking experts to help me answer that question. For example, are quarantine teenage girls more apt to Instagram nude photos? Are they somehow going to end up on the dark web? Are teenagers getting ripped off by their new virtual education? And how do we deal with their overwhelming anxiety and uncertainty? And are they losing empathy? I'll be talking to experts and friends like my friend Brooke Shields. She'll reveal how her complicated sexual upbringing has influenced how she is as a mother to teenage girls. It's a new world, and how we raise these young humans in it determine our future. So let's share some real experiences with all new episodes releasing every other Thursday. Listen to Go Ask Allie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What if I told you that UFOs, haunted houses, and even inexplicable magic tricks are all caused by the same creature? And what if I told you these powerful and ancient beings are meant to be feared? The Hidden Jinn, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Mankey's Grim and Mild, explores the legends of these ancient and terrifying creatures. Join me, Rabia Chaudhary, as we step into the world of The Hidden Jinn. Listen to The Hidden Jinn on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.